We have a fascinating setup here, if you ask me. For weeks, I have been discussing how gold has remained below $2,000, copper has remained below $4, silver has remained below, you know, $25, oil has cooperated. Well, oil isn't cooperating anymore, as anybody who's been paying attention for the last, let's call it five or six weeks, is concerned. Oil is now looking pretty strong. Gold just moved back above $2,000 briefly in the early hours this morning. Copper was above $4. Silver is looking strong. So this whole notion that inflation is resolved, which I would add is the consensus. That is the mainstream consensus, the soft landing, right? And that, what do they call it? The immaculate disinflation? Well, let's see. I mean, can commodity prices, you know, start moving higher and then we continue with the so-called immaculate disinflation? To me, when I hear the word immaculate disinflation, which very serious people, by the way, were using, I just think of this time is different. That's what it sounds like to me. It's immaculate. It's a miracle. This time is different. So I guess we shall see. I mean, if we do hit a massive recession, Maybe deflation is what we should all be worrying about. But until these commodity prices really fall, until oil is at $60 a barrel, until gold is at $1,700 and silver at 20 and copper at 3 I'm not see like, what disinflation? What disinflation? Like, the your groceries now are only going up at 4 or 5%, and does that actually reflect your reality? And oh, by the way, the grain deal out of Ukraine? Remember that? where now they can't export and, oh, but we're going to have this so-called immaculate disinflation. Again, I guess we'll wait and see. Nobody should have too high a conviction on the future as I make my argument here and then the exact opposite happens. Of course, this is always possible, as we all know. Nevertheless, though, as I sort of triangulate and tabulate all of these numbers, it kind of looks like the opposite. Now, turning to the bond market very quickly here before we discuss our upcoming future content, which I'm very excited about. The bond market is also feels like it's at this kind of pivotal point. The U.S. tenure at 3.97%. You know, again, back at that 4% level, flirting with it. Will it break through on the yields? The U.K. tenure at 4.32%, which compared to where it was at 4.66% feels low. As I keep saying here, that pension crisis was at 4.5%. So I'm sure they've prepared for this eventuality. So an interesting setup here. Now, just a couple of more items before we continue. I highlighted about two or three weeks ago how gallium was going to be the pressure point. We saw that because remember that three-line news story? I think it was Reuters that said that the Pentagon did not have any gallium in store. So we have a follow-up to that. Pentagon seeks supply of chip mineral gallium after China curbs exports. So this is July 26. And I remind you, August 1st, if you recall, is the day when there's no more exports of gallium and germanium outside of China without written permission. So it is now coming into effect so here's an article from July 26 from Bloomberg News. Pentagon seeks supply of chip mineral gallium after China curbs exports. 
The Pentagon plans to issue a first-time contract to U.S. or Canadian companies by year-end to recover gallium, a mineral used in semiconductors and military radar systems after China curbed exports this month. China announced the restrictions on gallium and another mineral, germanium, in a move seen as part of the country's tit-for-tat trade war on technology with the U.S. and Europe. The two metals are crucial to the semiconductor telecommunications industry and renewable energy industries, Yellen voiced her concern in a recent visit to Beijing. The Pentagon, which has reserves of germanium but not gallium, plans to use its authority under the Defense Production Act for, quote, prioritizing awards, end quote, by December 31st, quote, focusing on recovery of gallium from existing waste streams of other products, spokesman Jeff Jurgensen said in a statement. So if we step back a second here, Maybe they've figured out that for them to mine gallium, you know, it's going to take more than a few weeks to, you know, find raw forms of gallium to process. And so the strategy here, which sounds reasonable to me, is that they're taking a recycling strategy. So it'll be interesting to see how this works. This is the first real test in recent memory here at least since I started doing this program four years ago, of a resource actually simply not being available, which will bring up a deeper question on how well can the West adjust? You know, the West is famous for adjusting through technology and innovation and really the capitalist system using this magical system to provide, you know, innovations Throughout history, one thinks of Thomas Malthus' essay on the principle of population, where he said there's not enough arable land to create enough food with population growing, as he put it, geometrically, you know, exponentially, in other words. You know, and yet, Western science, technology, innovation did in fact prove Malthus wrong so far. So we're going to see with gallium you know, in real time, as of today, how that's going to work out for us. Does the West still have it in them to make something happen here? And this could be the first of many resources that start to become hard to acquire. I mean, I'm kind of back to this grain deal. It's hard to figure out who to believe here. But one of the stories coming out of the Ukraine grain deal that Russia has nixed is that a lot of that grain, in fact, didn't go to so much to the African continent, but it actually went to Europe. And that actually, more stories you hear is that Russia is delivering the grain for free to the African continent, to these countries in need. So again, I'm not there, you know, on these ships, seeing where these are in fact going. It's really hard to tell what is real, but it's an interesting story, isn't it? And are we going to see this immaculate disinflation occur? with grain. So, I mean, again, I'm kind of back to this immaculate disinflation. Will that actually happen here as resources start to get squeezed, which seems to be a pretty clear strategy from Russia and China? We are seeing direct moves. Again, we're seeing it with gallium and germanium and with grain. And arguably, you know, the oil market's a complicated market. So I'm not, you know, running out telling everybody what they should think about the oil market. But one could argue this may be happening with the oil market as well from Russia's side, with a lot of these BRIC countries also being a part of OPEC+. So 
the screws seem to be turning here and we are starting to see it in the price at least of oil and we're just seeing it just in general with you know china think of these prices in the context of what we're hearing about china how it is just kind of muddling along the great reopening in china after covid has not really gone well i just keep hearing over and over how the chinese economy is in trouble so if the chinese economy is in trouble why are commodity prices why is copper you know passing four dollars shouldn't it be going down why is silver almost at 25 dollars what happens if china does start moving then what so that is the landscape here and finally just to follow up on the deep sea mining situation which we have also been following the last two weeks here according to bloomberg news this was released yesterday july 31st Friday marked the conclusion of three weeks of tense meetings at the ISA, International Seabed Authority, a United Nations-affiliated organization that regulates the deep-sea mining industry. The ISA's 36-nation policy body, known as the Council, convened at ISA headquarters in Kingston, Jamaica, to discuss whether the organization will begin accepting mining applications from companies. Its conclusion was, quote-unquote, not yet. Most delegations said they won't approve any application until the ISA puts mining regulations in place. The session ended with an agreement to work, quote, with a view to adopting such regulations in 2025, but didn't set a binding deadline. You know, I thought last episode we heard 2024. Now we're hearing 2025. So that is interesting. Now, China is trying to push this ahead. The question of how to proceed with deep sea mining applications in the absence of environmental safeguards also roiled a gathering of ISA's assembly. Now, they met after the council which is the authority's quote-unquote supreme organ. The assembly includes all 168 member states and met for a week after the conclusion of the two-week council session. Although the assembly is the ISA's final arbitrator, its gatherings tend to rubber stamp council decisions. Last week, however, China upended that comedy by refusing to allow discussion on a proposal by Chile, France, Palau, and Vanuatu to prohibit the approval of any mining licenses until regulations are in place. China holds five mining contracts, the most of any country. Because the Assembly's agenda must be adopted by consensus, China prevented it from taking action on the ISA budget and other unrelated items until the prohibition proposal was nixed. Quote, this specific issue is not suitable to be discussed at this session of the Assembly, China's delegate Wenting Zhao said on Friday after five days of deadlock negotiations. In the final minutes of the session, China said the proposal could be included on the provisional agenda for the Assembly's next conference in July 2024. So it sounds like China is not overly happy about this moratorium idea. So interesting development there on this deep-sea mining issue, which really has permeated into the mainstream, as much of this natural resource discussion has as well. Now, coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome Northern Miner Western editor Henry Lazenby to the show, and it's a fascinating contrast with Stephen Stewart last week. Of course, Stephen Stewart of the Ore Group is based in Canada and has a good sense of what is happening with exploration companies in Canada, whereas Henry Lazenby went to Tonopah, Nevada, where there is a bit of a mining boom going on, and visited something like eight, maybe more, projects of different companies in that area. And what was so interesting about what Henry was saying is there is no sense, unlike Canada, of there being a lack of financing. He said that didn't really come up as an issue, as you'll hear in this very interesting 
discussion that I had with him. So I feel like we're getting a really clear contrast between what it's like to be an exploration company in the U.S. versus Canada. I mean, it did make me wonder out loud to myself, like, is this a structural issue? Is it simply too hard for American investors to put their money into the TSX Venture Exchange? Is it really, you know, something that simple? Hard to say. I mean, everything's connected at this point, but one does wonder what the difference is as far as the financing. One would think Canada is just as attractive of a jurisdiction as the U.S. One would think capital flows quite easily between Canada and the U.S., but maybe it's not that simple. Maybe it is a function of maybe the TSX Venture. Maybe some of these exchanges are on the Canadian Stock Exchange. So all very interesting. Maybe it's just people are excited to invest in Nevada, but maybe they're not excited to invest in British Columbia or Saskatchewan. All interesting questions that I think we should keep at the back of our mind as we continue to explore this issue. I think it's just surprisingly different. Also coming up is the Canadian Mining Symposium, which occurs October 12th and 13th in London, England. Simply go to events.northernminer.com to reserve your ticket. Robert Friedland is going to be there, as well as Randy Smallwood, Catherine McLeod-Seltzer, David Garofalo, Frank Justra, Sean Rosen, John A. McCluskey, and Don Lindsay, former CEO of Tech. So it is an all-star conference that we have going on here. So just go to events.northernminer.com to reserve your place. And if you are interested in sponsoring the event, you can also find information there. It is October 12th and 13th in London, England. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at northernminer and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts from wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, Exxon in talks with Tesla, Ford, Volkswagen on supplying lithium. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. ExxonMobil is in talks with Tesla, Ford Motor Company, and Volkswagen and other automakers about supplying them with lithium as the oil giant works to build a business around the crucial battery metal, according to people familiar with the matter. Exxon is one of several oil and gas companies seeking to expand into lithium production to take advantage of surging demand for use in electric vehicle batteries and as a way of diversifying beyond fossil fuels. The talks with potential customers are still early stage, and the company has yet to lay out its plans for potential lithium operations. However, the discussions are the latest sign of Exxon's growing interest in the lithium business. The company has also had conversations with battery giants Samsung and SK on Co., the people said, asking not to be named because the information is private. Exxon, SK on and Volkswagen declined to comment. Tesla, Ford, and Samsung didn't reply to messages seeking comment. So we also saw, I believe it was Chevron last week. So Exxon, more noises about going into lithium. I mean, it makes sense. If in fact we're going to be heading towards a battery electrified economy, then they might as well diversify. Continuing on the diversification theme, Saudi Arabia is maddened to acquire 10% of Brazil-based metals firm. In other words, Valet, this is Reuters via mining.com. Saudi Arabian mining company known as Madden has agreed to acquire a 10% stake in Brazil's base metal company, Valet. 10%. 
It said in a burst statement on Sunday as part of a strategy to invest in global mining assets. Madden, through Monera, its joint venture established with the Public Investment Fund on Thursday, signed a binding agreement to acquire the 10% stake in Valet Base Metals based on an enterprise value of $26 billion. So you're telling me that Valet Base Metals sold 10% of its business for $2.6 billion? I mean, this seems like nothing for Saudi Arabia. Quote, Monera's investment into Valet will play a key role in helping it expand the production of copper and nickel across its asset portfolio, which are critical to the development of new technologies that will benefit the global energy transition. So the drama continues. And what do we see here? Oil diversifying into metals. Continuing on, Linus signs updated contract with the U.S. government for Texas facility. This is Reuters via mining.com. Linus Rare Earth said on Tuesday it had signed an updated contract with the U.S. Department of Defense for the construction of the heavy rare earths component of its rare earths processing facility in Texas. Under the contract, a contribution of about $258 million by the U.S. government is currently allocated to the project, higher than the $120 million contribution announced last year, Linus said. So they more than doubled it to basically a quarter of a billion dollars. It's interesting just the way that this is being done. Basically, these operations are coming into being through the Department of Defense, which is interesting. Linus, the world's largest producer of rare earths outside of China, said the updated contract follows detailed design work and cost updates for the project. So no big deal, nothing to see here. Continuing on, Linus Rare Earths quarterly revenue slumps 47% on lower prices. And we were mentioning this last week. This is Reuters via mining.com that actually rare earths prices have fallen dramatically. There is a glut. Linus Rare Earths on Monday posted a 47% drop in fourth quarter revenue on lower prices from rare earth products and said it was targeting its first production of mixed rare earth carbonate from its Kalgoorlie facility in September. And just a quote from Linus here, future pricing trends will depend on the economic recovery in China and the Chinese production quota for the second half of 2023. So interesting from Linus there. Continuing on, Tech still engaged with several suitors for coal sale, CEO says. And this is Bloomberg News via mining.com. Tech Resources said it is still evaluating offers for its steelmaking coal operations as the Canadian miner works to exit the business while fending off a takeover approach by Glencore. Quote, we're not sitting on our hands, end quote, CEO Jonathan Price said Thursday during Tech's earnings call. Quote, we are working on this very actively right now and we're engaged with multiple counterparties. More than five months have passed since the Vancouver-based miner first announced plans to separate its coal business and become a standalone base metals producer. The company has since been under pressure to design a plan that can trump a proposal that shareholders rejected in April, as well as Glencore's $23 billion takeover proposal for the entire company. Tech is considering, quote, a number of structures, end quote, proposed by multiple interested buyers, Price said. So, The tech drama does continue, kind of quieted down here for a few months, but it is ongoing. Continuing on, Cadelco sees lower copper output, more stoppages in 2023. This is Reuters via mining.com. Chile state miner Cadelco on Friday cut its copper output forecast for 2023 and said it expects more halts in production during the second half of the year following months of declines. 
The miner expects to have a yearly production of between 1.3 and 1.35 million metric tons, down from 1.35 to 1.45 million tons previously forecast, it said on Friday, as it reported that pre-tax profit fell 86% in the first six months of the year. So this is very interesting. The pre-tax profit fell 86%. I mean, what that tells me is it's getting more expensive to mine, right? Because the prices aren't down. So it must be the cost. And it also says here the new forecast follows a recent rock explosion accident in its biggest mine, El Teniente, which has affected parts of the area's project developments and a productive area in the north of the mine. It said this will hamper production in the remainder of the year. Interesting. Remember when Peru lost the second spot to the Democratic Republic of Congo? And they were really unhappy about that and really wanted to work to get back to number two. You almost wonder if perhaps, you know, just speculating out loud, if maybe this explosion is a bit of an excuse for lower copper output. Continuing on, Alaska asks U.S. Supreme Court to undo EPA pebble mine veto. So if you thought Northern Dynasty Minerals soap opera was over after 20 years or I should say 15, you were wrong. The state of Alaska on Wednesday asked the U.S. Supreme Court to vacate a Biden administration veto blocking Northern Dynasty Minerals' proposed pebble, copper, and gold mining project, arguing the move violates a decades-old land swap deal and the state's sovereignty. The lawsuit asked the high court to reverse the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's Clean Water Act veto The agency's January decision determined the Pebble Project would cause large-scale loss and damage to the Bristle Bay watershed and prohibited the project from dumping mine waste into those waters. So it continues over in Alaska with Northern Dynasty. And one more here. One big gold seller among central banks has even more to offload. Bloomberg News via mining.com. So in the gold community, you hear over and over how central banks are buying, but that is not the case with Kazakhstan's central bank in a turnaround that's already taken it from one of the world's biggest gold buyers to a top seller this year, Kazakhstan's central bank is looking to cut the metal's share to as low as half of its $34.5 billion reserves. Alongside its counterparts in Turkey and Uzbekistan, the National Bank of Kazakhstan has emerged among the institutions that have contributed to a second straight quarter of decline in bullion purchases from central banks, whose buying accounted for nearly a quarter of global gold demand last year. The Kazakh sales abroad of about 67 tons in the first six months are part of a plan to lower the metal's share in reserves to an optimal level of 50 to 55 percent, equivalent to around 300 tons at the end of 2023 from the current 314 tons. The proportion was near 56 percent at the end of June, the central bank said in an emailed reply to questions. I mean, it reminds you of Jeffrey Christian, how he says, you know, central banks try and sell when it's high and buy when it's low, so maybe that's all that's going on here. But an unusual story in the gold category where a central bank is selling gold, because we almost always hear the opposite. Those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. to metal prices. Let's start with precious metals. Gold is trading at $1,955.55 per ounce. 
That is $9 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $24.36 per ounce. That is $0.23 lower than last week. Platinum is trading at $953.08 per ounce. That is $6 lower than last week. And palladium is higher at $1,281.79 per ounce. That is $3 higher than last week. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is at $4 even per pound. That is $0.17 higher than last week. Iron ore is $0.05 lower at $112.46 per metric ton. Aluminum is $0.04 higher at $1.04 per pound. Lead is a penny higher at $0.98 per pound. Nickel is $0.70 higher at $10.02 per pound. Tin is also higher at $13.04 per pound. That is $0.11 higher than last week. Cobalt is unchanged at $15.16 per pound. Lithium is lower at $37.70 per kilogram. That is $3 lower than last week. Uranium is slightly higher at $56.15 per pound. That is $0.40 higher than last week. And zinc is also higher at $1.16 per pound. That is $0.06 higher. So quite an interesting situation where gold, platinum, and silver are down whereas most industrial metals are higher and remarkably higher at, you know, copper at $4, you know, nickel with a nice little jump there of 70 cents back above $10. You know, some significant numbers are being achieved here. Again, tin above $13, zinc at $1.16. Definitely the wind in the sails of the basic industrial metals. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome Henry Lazenby, Western editor at the Northern Miner, based out of Vancouver. And he discusses his recent visit to Tonopa, Nevada, a fascinating multi-site tour. The Northern Miner loves to do site visits. We get firsthand accounts of what is happening by seeing the projects with our own eyes and talking to the management team in person. And so it is a fascinating interview. So I hope you enjoy it. And I will see you on the other side. Joining us today, I'm very pleased to welcome Henry Lazenby, Western editor at the Northern Miner, back to the Northern Miner podcast. And Henry, first of all, welcome back. Thank you very much for having me, Adrian. It's a pleasure to be back. Well, it's a pleasure to have you back. And last time we had you on there, I got a couple of emails saying, have that guy back on. He's great. Uh, so great. <laughs> there are going to be some people out there that are going to be really happy to hear from you. So, you know, the Northern Miner, one of the staples of the newspaper is the site visits, meaning where the reporters go and see firsthand what is going on at mine sites, talk to the you know management teams, really get a boots on the ground view of what is happening. You just went on a very interesting site visit tour, several site visits in Tonopah, Nevada. Can you tell us about this? What were you doing there? 
Yes, certainly, Adrian. Thank you. So it was a group of about six to eight companies, depending on who you talk to, who decided to take some analysts, some investors and the media down to Tonopah, Nevada. It's about three hours north of Las Vegas. And it's really in desert country. It's about two valleys over from Death Valley. So, you know, you get the, the milieu immediately. And the goal was to show these individuals the power of the mining industry. Essentially, you know, Tonopah was founded around about the 1900s with the discovery of the Tonopah Silver District. And it is said that the nearby Comstock Silver Load of Nevada, if that was the silver deposit that created Nevada, the discovery of the Tonopah Silver District was the uh, paid for the war that kept Nevada independent. And so there's a bit of historical significance to the region. And uh, of course, today, with the advent of higher metals prices and new exploration technologies, old and tired silver and gold containing mineral deposits are there for redevelopment and for discovering the reaches of those deposits that the old timers couldn't get to due to technological constraints, etc. And then, of course, with today's energy transition uh, to more sustainable sources, the discovery of high-grade lithium in cervical clays has opened up a new chapter for mineral exploration around the Tonopah district, really. And so, you know, it was wonderful to just witness the, the almost electrical excitement in the air of that little community. When last did you walk down the main road of a town and you saw, like, a mineral assayer store, you know, or a lithium company just saying, we're here, we're, this is a storefront lithium miner. Where did you see that last? So that gives you a little bit of an intro. Well, it sounds like a Clint Eastwood movie or something. Just to give, you know, listeners a, a clue, like how big is Tonopah? So the population just stands to... run about 3,000, I would say just less than 3,000 individuals. But there's a lot of space around it to develop pretty rapidly. <laughs> Excellent. And how many companies did you visit in and around Tonopah? It was surprisingly many. There were at least eight or nine projects that were shown to us. Some of them are, of course, further along the development curve than others. Some have just been staked and they are busy creating the narrative, laying that out for investors and trying to raise the capital to buy into this narrative. But so let me just quickly run through them. Uh, BlackRock Silver really kickstarted the modern day era back in 2020. They formed a deal with another small royalty company in Nevada, Eli Gold Royalties, and uh, they consolidated several mining rights in and around Tonopah and really kickstarted the new era in what's called today Tonopah West. And it's a very prospective project that historically produced about 175 million ounces of silver, 1.8 million ounces of gold. And so, you know, there's a lot of perspectivity there. Other one we saw, Suma Silver. They are exploring the Eastern District with their huge project. And then we also saw Allegiant Gold, which is exploring the East Side project, just about 35 kilometers to the west of Tonopah. Then we have Westfold Mining and it Hashbrook Gold project, which it's really considering as a, a vault storing its gold until the opportune consolidation moment arrives. And then onto the lithium side, we saw American Lithium's TLC project, one of the most advanced and highest grade, uh, largest in North America. 
we saw black rock silver again and its partnership with Tierlac Lithium. Essentially, when BlackRock started drilling, they discovered these lithium-bearing clays at the top of their package, and they were indeed looking for the deeper silver stuff down below. And so they decided, let's create another company. We form a partnership with Tierlac. We give them the top part of our holdings. They explore for lithium, and we go for the deeper stuff, precious metals below. So it's a very synergistic partnership unfolding right there. And then just quickly running through some of the others, we saw Century Lithium and its Angel Island project in the nearby Clayton Valley, which is just next door to Albemarle's Silver Peak Mine, which is producing lithium in North America. And then also we could see construction of Pure Energy Minerals' direct lithium extraction pilot plant there in the Clayton Valley. Pure Energy is working with their partner, formerly called Schlumberger, today called SLB and uh, creating a new direct lithium extraction plant in the Clayton Valley uh, there in Esmeralda County. So in a nutshell, lots of development happening, lots of exploration dollars going into the ground. That is fascinating because, of course, we just had Stephen Stewart on last program, and he was saying how there's basically a dearth of you know, financing that was going into the exploration companies in Canada. I mean, this sounds like a bit more of an optimistic story you're telling me. Uh, is that the sense that you got? Yes, it certainly would appear that way. If you recall, just fairly recently, Canada's Fraser Institute ranked Nevada as one of the top mining investment destinations in the world. And from what I could see, um, I certainly picked up a lot of optimism on the jurisdiction. Nobody was uh, commenting about you know sluggish permitting timelines, there really were no real issues regarding environmental concerns or any political kind of question marks over the jurisdiction. Everybody is very much excited to hear the miners are in town. They want to know what's happening and they really are supportive. They're excited. You know, can my family get involved? Can we get a job? You know, they're all switched on and excited about this. So from my point of view, I feel perhaps that is more a Canada-centric uh, perspective, certainly not the case with Nevada. Good. Just the final point on that then. So you got the sense that they were drilling and they could afford to drill. Certainly so. I very much think the lithium side of the story speaks for itself. You know, the lithium price is rather high. There's a lot of excitement and, you know, the fundamentals are increasingly well understood, I think. So people really do understand the opportunity ahead of us to capitalize and create those new supply chains that really cuts out those regions of the world that you know perhaps the west doesn't really feel as comfortable with relying on indefinitely for critical components for our you know modern economy okay excellent and so you listed quite a few companies here so mm. i guess i'm going to ask you maybe for some of the highlights that kind of stood out in your mind i mean Maybe since you mentioned lithium, let's start with that. What were some of the highlights, whether it was the way the infrastructure was set up to just how much lithium might be in the project? What were some of the highlights of what you remember at the lithium projects? So one of the highlights, I would say, must be American battery technology company. And it's Tonopah Flats project, uh, which is really just down the road, the I-95 from Tonopah. And they have already amassed a big heap of lithium bearing ore 
So it was a unique opportunity to walk up to this pile of rock and it's really uh, brittle clay, and, and but it still looks like rock. The moment you touch it, it starts crumbling apart. And I saw some of the geologists, uh, you know, very kind of surreptitiously licking the rocks because they're testing to see if they can taste the salinity for it. It was uh, pretty interesting to witness that. But so that really goes to show that they are quite advanced along with their plans. They are busy building. They've secured a, a spot and uh, they will be building their pilot plant uh, presently. And so that material is scheduled to go through there. And with that, they will be testing the process, checking the flow sheet for optimization opportunities. And then, of course, also validating their geological models along the way and get that recovery. That's really what we're looking for, the recovery number up, which will really then also dictate the cost figures. We're looking for the lower figure on that end as well. So that's a really exciting one. Of course, uh, you cannot mention the lithium plays in Tonopah without talking about American Lithium and their TLC project. TLC currently hosts about 8.8 .8 million tons of lithium carbonate equivalent, and that grades at about 809 parts per million. And now if you just look some of the brine operations down in South America, they are considered like very high grade and they're just over into the thousands, right? About 1800 parts per million in some extreme cases. So you can argue that there's high grade lithium in the clays there. And the beauty of it, which American Lithium shared with us, is that their mineralization is very weakly bound to the host rock. And so it will really be amenable to a very easy, simplified flow sheet, not require many deleterious chemicals that, that might draw some environmental question marks, etc. It's all straightforward flow sheeting and mining. So very encouraging to see that, you know, there's a real opportunity here for America to step up its uh, lithium output in the face of these modern day challenges. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. The clays have come up on this program before and kind of as like a newer, unexpected development. So can you speak a little bit about the clays? Like, is it kind of unique to Nevada or is it kind of all around and they're just starting to figure this out? Can you just speak about the clays a little bit? That's an astute observation. And uh, Adrian, um, I'm unfortunately not a geologist able to authoritatively answer that, but I certainly do share your view that it does seem to be a relatively newcomer to the lithium industry that we've been following over the past decade, right? It's all been about the brines. It's all been about the hard rock stuff down in Australia and perhaps a few other places, including Canada. But now these clays really came out of nowhere almost. You know, some, some companies have been working on those, given uh, for quite a, a few years, and they've been running into some permitting roadblocks, land ownership issues, and uh, those are difficult to contend with. For Tonopa region at this stage, there are none of these issues, and it really is clean sailing from what I learned and observed, and I'm able to tell you right now, no issues that I'm aware of. So it's all really encouraging. In the words of our respected mining friend, Robert Friedland, those lithium juniors in Tonopa district really have what it takes to stimulate that hand to wallet reflex from investors. And I'm certainly convinced as well. <laughs> That's hilarious. So just before we move on from the lithium, then onto maybe some of the precious metals plays you saw out there, do you have any idea or did they mention when they expect production or is it still too early to say? 
It's still early days. And as I mentioned, uh, one of the most advanced projects there are still in the pilot testing phase. So ostensibly, a commercial production for any of these projects would still be at the earliest three to four, five years away. And that's really the trend that we're seeing with many of these lithium projects elsewhere as well. The hype happened now. The dollars went into the ground now. They're now starting to show some of the findings. And I think that's really feeding into the excitement in the market at the moment. But it will still be a little while longer. You know, they still have to navigate that unloved bottom part of the Lassonde curve where nobody really cares about it as the project gets constructed before the excitement really starts to bleed into that production phase. Moving on to then some of the precious metals plays, I mean, what were some of the more exciting highlights that you saw while you were out there? First off, BlackRock Silver uh, really should be leading the tour I'm giving you because Bill Howard, the executive chairman there, really does take the credit for starting this new wave of exploration interest we're seeing in and around Tonopa. So as I mentioned, historically, the Tonopa West project is credited for having produced about 175 million ounces of silver and 1.8 million ounces of gold. That was only from 7.5 million tons of materials. So you can see it's a pretty high grade situation we have there. And then production ceased in 1930 when the miners reached the water table and their technology at the time were not sufficient to keep dewatering below that level. And so they were following some of the highest grade veins and loads they encountered there and everything was just left as it is. Of course, the war period at that time didn't help matters. And so mining was left and the whole district stood as is for many decades. And so enter Bill Howard and soon enough, they uh, drilled into the historical Victor vein where there's still a mining uh, head frame standing. It's one of Tonopa's uh, recognizing features when you enter from the west. And so today they've constrained an inferred underground resource there of about 3 million tons, grading 446 grams of silver equivalent. And that equates to about 43 million ounces of silver equivalent and uh, nothing to be sneezed at, right? And you know, the funny thing about that project, some of those veins run right under the town, under the bank, under the old uh, hotels there. It's just, you don't get better than that. You don't get better than that. Most promising of last year's drill work was a hole that returned 4.4 meters, grading 2.36 grams gold and 163 grams silver per ton, which equates to roughly about 400 grams silver equivalent per ton. And uh, that really told them that they are now tracing some of the same structures the old timers were mining, but they didn't discover or know of previously. And so that really is a highlight. The new guys are onto the stuff the old miners were mining and they know where it is and they literally can't wait to get down there, get the pumps running again, dewater, get some modern drills down there and really start to blow things out of the water. I just can't get more excited about an exploration story than this. Another one that's really exciting is the Suma Silver story and their Hughes project. They are looking where BlackRock is looking westward. Suma is looking eastward, starting right from the center of town. 
And so the Hughes project, they have uh, covers about five kilometers stretching in an eastern direction from the Tonopa Silver Load. And they have already also made a very encouraging discovery. They call it the Ruby hit in 2020 and 2021, which intersected zones of quartz veining that have mineralization in it. And I'm told that they have some radiometrics and geophysics that point to a massive anomaly at depth, which they have not had the money or time to drill yet and which the old timers also did not know of. So there is a very, very exciting, almost low hanging fruit, if you will, for them to go and look at this summer. And uh, the results will start coming through later this season into the winter. Some other very interesting projects in the district would also comprise Allegiant Gold's project in the Walker Lane trend, very prospective. We hear some majors having very, very profitable operations in that trend. They call it the Eastside project. They have two deposits. One is a little bit earlier stage than the other. And uh, for them, it's still a bit of a matter of seeing what we have over at the Castle project, which entails a brownfields open pit. They have some low hanging uh, targets, which they can with uh, rotary air drilling quickly assess whether there is potential for them to just essentially restart mining there. And then they've got the earlier state east side, which they uh, really need to drill out aggressively to see how big it can get. And to that end, they did recently bring on board Alan Roberts, who is an expert in geophysics, geology and mineral exploration. And he really took the center stage in this tour and showed us around his plans and his interpretation of the geology. And he's exceptionally optimistic that he has uncovered the direction in which the ore body has deposited. And he thinks he knows where the next drill should go to really move the needle forward on that project. Perhaps the other last project I will mention is Westfold Mining and its Hashbrook Gold project. It, by all accounts, is the most advanced project in the district. But different to all the other projects I've mentioned is they are content to sit still and do nothing with their project at the moment. They are biding their time and waiting for perhaps somebody with a vision towards consolidating the regional precious metals plays to swoop in, give them the price they would like for it, and they'll be happy with it. CEO Sandy McVeigh uh, explained to us that it really boils down to the difference in IRR. You know, if they take the project as it is. Just in January, they did put out a feasibility study on the project, which really confirmed some very positive economics and a development case for it. But the majority owner, uh, Peter Palmito of Sun Valley Gold uh, Private Investment Fund, is more content to, to wait, it's, uh, not develop, wait for an acquisition because that really equates to the difference in IRR of something like 50% versus 550%. So there's method in that. Um, that project has a probable reserve of about 44 million tons, grading 4.8 grams gold for 753 ounces of gold. So quite a bit of material to work with, a project good to go for the right person. Now, the other point that I should add there is the potential consolidator has entered the valley. 
Sentera Gold, whom we know in recent years got kicked out of Kyrgyzstan for its Kumtor mine. They made an acquisition early last year, just up the valley, and uh, they are currently drilling there at the Gemfield project. I think it's too early to say at this stage, really, for them to even know what they really have. They need to get to grips with that uh, project. It's still very new to them. And then I think the rumor mill has it that, you know, they might, depending on what they find at Gemfield, they might start kicking, you know, the tires on some other assets in the valley, looking to build size, perhaps do a hub and spoke type of model. So those are all kinds of things happening in around Tanopa, and I haven't even mentioned all of them. I can see why there's excitement there. It sounds like there's an enormous amount of activity. So just on a big picture level, why do you think it took so long for this area to be rediscovered? Yeah, no, that's a very valid and great question. In in my mind, I would say it really is the majors and all the discoveries to the northwest of Nevada that really caused all this excitement over the past five, seven years, you know, with Nevada gold mines in there and uh, all the other movers and shakers, really. I think the attention was just drawn that way. Nobody thought to to come and look down here. You know, everything was available. Everything was there. The historical documents are public. And uh, it really just took somebody with a vision to come and consolidate and come and look at these historical workings and find the modern application of the, you know, the proper technologies and to, to, to make it economical in today's economy. That's exactly what it sounded like. It sounded like it took someone with vision and then all of a sudden people caught on into what was being done there. And there you are. Here we are a few years later. And again, it's hustling and bustling. So as we wrap up, you mentioned the majors. Where are the majors in all this? Was there any talk that whole time about where they fit into this whole picture? Or again, is this too early? Where are the majors in all this? Yes, I would assume the majors really are currently focused on what they've acquired in the northern parts of Nevada. There are here and there some juniors that have the buy-in of a major, such as a Kinross or perhaps a little stake by a Centera, like for instance in the case of Westvolt. They do have a small stake there already. So, you know, they're there and I, I would certainly say they're monitoring very closely because they're hungry. They need to replace their reserves. But I would give to them that the Tonopa plays at this stage really still are small if they are viable. And on the other side, they're still very early stage. There are a lot of prospective uh, mounds out there, but I think the majors really want scale and grade. So just by those two tokens, Tonopa is not yet ready. And hence, we're waiting for some company to step up, a white knight to come and really just grab everything in the district and make one play out of that in some way or form. Okay, excellent. And it is fairly close together. Is that right? Like, is it all fairly like in a pretty unified little space? It is. It is. It's a whole universe in itself. For instance, uh, I mentioned it's three hours north of Nevada. But once in Tonopah, you've got Goldfield, Gemfield, and then Tonopah itself. These are three very historical mining boom and bust communities where Tonopah probably is the only one that really survived. You know? <laughs> and then the Clayton Valley is only about 100 kilometers south 
from Tonopah as well, south, southwest. And that itself is just one valley over from Death Valley. So, you know, it's all very dry. Water is the big issue. If you have water and you want to evaporate brines, you know, that's one way to go. If you don't have water, you want to use the lithium clays. And so that's the opportunity that opened up. I think previously many of the players also looked into this fact that if you don't have a water right in that area, you're basically dead in the water. It doesn't matter how great your grades or, or deposit is, you won't be able to make an economical run at it. And so I think that's also a part of this change in mindset is that the clays don't need water. We can take the clays, take it somewhere else and process it there. So back to your question, it's all relatively close to each other. Let's say 150 kilometer radius from each other. And then new opportunities in the different styles of mineralization. You know, of course, Silver Peak has been evaporating the brines there for several years now, several decades. And I think the initial thought was everybody's thinking, oh, we can maybe do the same. But over time, it has become apparent that it's not the case. Water is too scarce there. But now the lithium claims are offering a new opportunity. Okay, excellent. Do you have any final thoughts for us as we wrap up? Well, I would say Tonopa certainly is on the cusp of a new mining boom. And my hope for the community is that this time it's more long lasting and bring more benefit to the community and the environment than last time around. Perhaps the last thing I really do want to mention is uh, one of the most interesting discussions we did have there was actually by surprise. Just as a, a stopgap measure, uh, some of the organizers got a local a naturalist, uh, Dr. Tamsin Stringham of the Nevada University there. And she is a land restoration expert. And the topic she spoke to us about was uh, reclamation in Nevada and how to really develop these reclamation techniques specifically adapted to the arid conditions uh, there. The story is that at the height of the Tonopah mining era in the 1920s, 25, there were about 125,000 people in that small community, which today is only 3,000 people. And that took a lot of people. I'm told it took about a single person, a lamb per week to feed them. So they imported a lot of sheep into that area and it absolutely destroyed the natural habitat. And so today, still, one of the challenges is to restore the natural habitat to before the first mining era came there. And that discussion really drew so much interest from everybody there, all the juniors, the mine managers, the CEOs, so engaging, so interesting. And, and that, of course, is an ongoing project trying to reestablish the native Indian rice grass there. Uh, just really interesting. Lots of interest in the region on a mining, social, environmental scale. The governance part is already in place. Lots happening in Nevada. And if I had money to lay there, I would certainly be considering it strongly. <laughs> Fascinating as ever. Henry Lazenby, Western editor at the Northern Miner. Thank you for joining us once again on the Northern Miner podcast. It's my pleasure, Adrian.
Thank you once again to Henry Lazenby for the fascinating interview. And again, that contrast between the U.S. and Canada in regard to exploration, I am still trying to work out in my head. Maybe at the Canadian Mining Symposium, I can get an answer to that. And that is coming up on October 12th and 13th. Just go to events.northernminer.com to learn how to sponsor or to reserve a ticket to the event. It should be a good one. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.